the school of life for star-obsessed witches. This is the comparison that came to me as I was doing an exercise that I'm 90% sure I heard from Josh Spector, who runs the 4D Interesting Newsletter. And it's funny because someone who changed my life back when I was a university student was John Plintoff. And maybe that's a story I'll share in the future. I'm mentioning this because the guest I have on the show today had just as much of an impact on me. And what she shared in our conversation truly is the kind of practical philosophy that the School of Life is known for. Or at least I hope because the exercise was predicated on giving people a comparison to something they know. But I digress. My guest today is Lou Henwood, known as the Singing Zookeeper. She's my first British guest, and it's funny how it took me this long. And we discussed a fair bit of what the culture here is like, which I hope is going to be interesting even for those of you who don't share the same context. Principles she shares are universal anyway, and I have no doubt you will find how they apply to the culture that you were brought up in. It was a longish conversation, so I'm just going to jump in, and I'll be back at the end with a forecast for the week. Welcome to the Starry Sky and Witchy Things podcast. I'm Alexis, your new witchy reefer. I'm known as Osteria in witchy circles. I'm a photographer by day and start obsessed urban witch by night. Sometimes the opposite, often what I want. And I'm as star obsessed as Natsuki Shinomiya in Utapri. Or just a warning, there would be loads of attack references. I'm a Capricorn Sun, Scorpio Moon, and Scorpio Rising. Probably a Lyran Star Seed, a Tarot Lover, and all of my lipsticks have a spell on them. I started this podcast to share my passion and the empowerment and self-love that Cosmic Witchcraft brought into my life. Come every Thursday for captivating conversations about life, business, and magic that blend the practical with the world and bring you all-out history geek solo episodes and amazing guests to explore the ways in which we can bring more enchantment into our lives. Ready to live life limitless? Then let's dive into today's episode. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm really excited to have this conversation, which anybody in the audience would be like, when are you not excited to have a guest? Which is actually true, because I'm not going to have a guest if I'm not going to be excited to be talking to them. So that's why. <laughs> anyway, so I'll let you introduce yourselves for those who are not familiar with you, and then I'll kick us off. Okay. Alexis, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. My name is Lou, uh, Lou Henwood, and I'm uh, better known as the singing zookeeper. And what I do is I'm a rapid transformational therapist, um, mentor, and healer. And um, I will carry... Leave that up in the air because I know it's a very unusual name. So I shall hand that over to you too. Now, you did say something about the fact that you pulled a tarot card for me. Alexis, I want to... Yes, I did. And I, I pulled the Nine of Cups, which I thought is a really good fit for you since you do these transformation things. And the Nine is the last card before the ending of the Deccan. Beautiful. Yeah, about emotions, yeah. Beautiful, beautiful. So... Um, basically, if I tell you a little bit about my back history, um, you know some of it already, but um, when I was a very little girl, I'd had four quite serious traumatic experiences by the time I was six. And I dropped into a major depression. Obviously, I didn't know that. I was six years of age. My parents didn't know it. Nobody really knew because I'm quite old. Um, and in that day and age, depression in children wasn't recognised. But it was a it was a consequence of these traumas. 
And what I have discovered recently is the skills that I've got now, I've had since I was that age. Um, when I was a little one, to get out of the emotional pain that I was in, I used to astral project. I didn't realize actually until recently that's what I used to do. Um, and when I was about 14, I sat down at one point. Again, I was still struggling with depression and realized that I could see right across multitudes of dimensions. But of course, it frightened the living daylights out of me because I didn't know what was going on. So at the age of six, when I was astral projecting, I thought I was bad. I thought I was wrong. I thought I was a very bad little girl for doing that. Um, and then when I was 14, to see what I saw, I very quickly clamped it down because, again, I thought it was it was wrong. Bear in mind, I was brought up uh, in a Catholic family and I was uh, educated in a convent school by predominantly nuns. So you could see that that wouldn't be well received because the threat that we had probably every single day, most days, would be, and you'll be going to hell. So anything that didn't fit in with that particular religion, I felt guilty for. So the things I discovered as a youngster, I, I stuck in a box, stuffed away, stuffed away. But my depression didn't disappear. So I went seeking uh, when I was old enough, when I'd sort of the penny dropped. My mother dragged me off to a psychiatrist and he put me on drugs, which my father wouldn't let me take. Um, I went off to see counsellors when I was sort of a, a young teenager and they said that maybe my mother also needed some counselling. And then I freaked out. So, no, 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 you're wrong. Um, and then went on a big journey of trying to work out how to release myself from this really deep emotional pain. And I sought out therapists. I sought out spiritual teachings. I sought out um, different uh, energetic healers. I did a whole smorgasbord. And things would work for a time. And I was very lucky to have a therapist for quite a long time. He was a very spiritual man. So he taught me a lot rather than just being the spirit, just being the therapist and you, you could do this and that and the other to heal you. He also brought in the idea that there was more to it than this. And then I revisited my spirituality as such at the turn of the century when the millennium was coming. There was a lot of earth healing going on. And I just split up with my ex-husband and I was in a, a a weird place. I didn't quite know where I was and um, found a group of people who were doing earth healing. So a lot of energetic work. And I found that a lot of my gifts reappeared. But again, I got whoop, I was scared of them, very, very scared of them. But I didn't have the people around me that could support me in the way that I would have needed at that time or if they were there. I couldn't see them, if that makes sense. We see them when we're ready. And I couldn't see them. So I got very scared about what I was discovering sort of at the turn of the millennium. So again, squashed it, set it down and said I would never, ever revisit it again. So I spent probably the rest of my years running away from myself. I went from job to job. I was a recruitment consultant. I did really well. Every job I went into, I did really well. Um, and there was always something wrong with the job. There was always something wrong with the manager. There was always something wrong with the situation. It was never me. Now, we all know that if there is an issue and you're in it, you're the common denominator. But because I couldn't think or, or feel that way or see it. So I fled the country, not with the full knowledge that I was fleeing from myself, but in, you know, in hindsight, I was fleeing from myself and I landed up in the Philippines. Um, and really things started to open up for me at that point in time. Go on, that is, that's an amazing story. So I don't feel like I should interrupt you. Although I had not realized you had been raised Catholic. Is that yeah. happened to me too, so I can totally relate to everything that is not in the book it's gonna be like you're going to hell to the point that I actually had a situation on retreat and I had like a vision and the people I knew I, I mentioned it and they were kind of like really scared of it and like we're literally in a retreat like the setting there's the church you believe that the real presence of Jesus is literally five steps away and you're thinking 
that can possibly be from God. And you just like, it, it's, it's so much anxiety that you can like raise to it, isn't it? So. I have um, a lot of respect for people who do follow um, a religion as such. But my feeling from it, and this is purely personal, so I'm not knocking anybody, but my my own experience is the indoctrination and the dogma actually, from my experience, shut me down, shut me down, made me less than I actually was. I was very frightened of speaking up uh, for the fear of hell and damnation. And for me, that was from um, humans waving that stick, not from Christ, not from God, because I really fundamentally believe that the divine Christ, God, the universe, whoever it is, it's all within us. We each and every one of us are that being. But what we need to do is uncover all of the layers that we put around ourselves as we grew up, because we needed to do it to survive, like me shutting my gifts down when I was a little one, because I was terrified. I thought I was going to go to hell. But we all do, to a certain extent, squash ourselves to sit within societal, family, school, and peers' norms. Peers' norms, that sounds like a name, doesn't it? <laughs> so, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Be accepted by our peers is what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. But the job here, while we're on this planet, as a, a, a spirit in a human experience is to shed the layers that we put on to keep ourselves safe and to find out who we are. And I didn't quite get that. It took me a lot. I sort of knew it fundamentally. I knew that Christ was in me. I knew that God was within me. I knew that. Nobody taught me that. It certainly didn't come from Catholic um, training, teaching. Um, not as I understood it anyway. So when I went off to the Philippines, um, I went there with a view to setting up the first interactive living museum in the Philippines. Okay, I didn't go there initially with that label on me, but I knew it was on the horizon. I had a lot of experiences before I had to start that project. And one of the things that um, I noticed was in the UK, I had a real sense of I don't belong. I do not belong. I don't fit in. I just don't have a place. I really don't exist. And I think a lot of us feel this. Um, and what happened when I went to the Philippines? Of course, I didn't fit in. I didn't belong. I was quite obviously the outsider. I was at least, you know, six inches taller than the next person. I got white, blonde, bleached, short hair. And I was yelled at, not nastily everywhere, but friendly. I'm going to say the Filipino people are beautifully friendly. Hi, ma'am. How are you doing? Hi, ma'am. Because I stood out. And it took me a little bit of time, but I let the, the idea of I've got to belong go because there was absolutely no way would I ever belong. And it was so freeing. It was such a sense of freedom because I could be who I truly was. I could be and behave and stand in who I was. At the time, I wasn't registering. That's what was going on because I reverse engineered this one. So I got back to the UK. But I realized that the, the freedom I had, because I wasn't trying to fit in, no energy or effort going from me trying to fit in. Um, and then the other thing that I noticed, again, this is stuff that I've unpacked since I've got home, um, was when I first got there, I found it really difficult because it's a totally different culture. And of course, I went in there with this Western viewpoint that the world should act this way and you do things this way and you do things that way and you do things this, da, 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 da. I'm trying to set up a museum from scratch, me with my Western ideas and my business head and da, 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 didn't work. It didn't work. Firstly, I frightened most of the workers to death because I didn't smile. I was always frowning. And secondly, I was imposing my values on their culture and I couldn't see it. And I had one experience when the builders were building the museum and I was pushing, if you can imagine, pushing to get this thing done. And because they were scared of me, they always told me something had been done when it hadn't been done because they didn't want to lose face or get into trouble, which, of course, they did because I'd get there and find out it wasn't done. So it made me 
quite, I lost my temper quite a lot over there. Bless them. And they still love me. Um, but one of the days the uh, builders were building a well and they'd hit the water table and they were just putting out water. Uh, bear in mind, there's no shovels, no steel. They were using coconut shells and buckets. That's it. This, this uh, well was being dug this way. And they hit the water table, but it needed to go deeper. And they were just pulling out water. So I was trying to, bear in mind, I couldn't speak the language. I didn't understand the culture, didn't understand the history, didn't understand anything about rice farming. So this is just a fine example. If you put your mind to something and you want to do it, you can do it. Any obstacles that you've got don't need to stand in your way. If you look at the obstacles that you've got, you'll stay where the obstacles are. But if you look forward and forget about the obstacles that you have hanging around your neck, I've got two O-levels. So I graduated from school with two O-levels. No qualifications, really. But if I'd have kept my mindset, oh, I haven't got this experience and I haven't got that and I haven't got the qualification, how does it it would never have happened. But I had a really clear objective, but I've gone off tangent a little bit. So these guys eventually were pulling out water and I'm miming. I can speak a little bit of my line on, but not much. So I was miming and they were saying, because they, they had a smattering of English as well. So we sort of limped along together. And I was saying to them, you've got to get deeper than that and pull out mud as well as water. I couldn't mind that. My brain and my body just couldn't work out how to mine that. So they said, ma'am, 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 it's fine. When we've got all the water out, we'll dig the dirt. Fine. Okay, lovely. Ma'am, we've hit the dirt. Great. And I turn around and they're all putting their rucksacks on. What are you doing? We're going for lunch. What? Why? Because it's lunchtime, ma'am. And of course, by the time they came back, the well had filled up again. And when they all walked out, there was nothing I could do. Because their culture was, this is lunchtime, we're going home for this amount of time, we go home to speak to our family, we go and look after our family. I couldn't interfere with that. So my frustration, I'd either got a chance of being frustrated and angry or letting it go. And I let it go. I was crying with laughter. Eventually, I saw the universal joke. I was crying with laughter. And I think at that point, I realized that I was trying to push, push, push things that weren't going to work in my way and getting frustrated because they weren't working in my way. And I think we tend to do that. I'm being very, you know, painting a broad canvas here. A lot of us get ourselves into stress and trouble when we're trying to control things, when we're trying to make things happen in the way that we think it needs to be done. These people knew their job. These people knew have been doing it for centuries. And there's this cocky, arrogant white woman decide she knows better. I had to let it go. So the freedom of letting that control aspect go as well was another thing that made me blissful out there. I was just almost childlike. It was gorgeous. And they have a very childlike mentality. I don't mean childish, childlike, free, playful, joyful, ebullient, just gorgeous. And I, it was infectious. I, because I'd let all this stuff go, could be the same. So when I got back to the UK, I realized I'd started putting all my old stuff back on so I could fit back into UK culture. And UK culture is even stricter than their culture in effect that we have an idea that people have to fit in pigeonholes. They have to have certain qualifications to do this job and you have to be a certain age to do that job and you have to behave this way and that way. And all of these constraints that I was almost trying to squeeze myself back into, including not being able to get a job because I don't have the qualifications to do a job at the level I'm capable of doing, and also my age. I was 56 when I got back to the UK. Man, put me on a, you know, send me to B&Q or to a supermarket, and I'm not disregarding anybody who works in either of those areas, but the qualifications and experience that I'd got, I should have been able to get a job, but not at 56. So I went into a very chronic depression. It's like, oh, I'm back again. Here we go again. Before we move on on the next chapter, now you're back in the UK in the story. And I believe as we're speaking, you're my first guest is actually in the same country as me. 
uh, how did you actually work through finding yourself with this culture shock of like it's beautiful that they literally were like well it's lunchtime we're not sacrificing that like it, like it's a sacred thing that they're gonna go off eat and be with their family which is like anybody who's ever worked over here not even gonna happen and um how any resistance everything how did you manage to just like go along with that coming from the background it took a lot it took a lot um I'd got a very, very good boss at the time who was the village chief. She's the what they call the barangay captain. Uh, she ran a hotel over on the mainland. She spent a lot of time in Switzerland. So she she quite understood the Western and the and the um the clash between the two cultures. So she sort of sat in the middle of it. And quite often she would pick me up on what are you concentrating on? What are you worrying about? Can you do anything about it? No. So why are you worrying about it? So that was one thing. Because at that point in time, I was um, battling for a property snatch. I was part of a, um, a property development and one of, I think, about 30 owners where the property was being snatched back. And I was trying to look after all these 30 owners, including me being an owner. And she was sort of, Lou, you can't. You can't carry this for everybody else. What control have you got? You haven't got control, so let it go. So that was one of the other things. Then there was another guy who we brought into the museum who was an artist. This bloke, I've never seen anybody so laid back in my life. If he was any more laid back, he'd be horizontal. Um, he would, he'd have two workers doing the job he was uh, commissioned to do. He'd sit there with a bottle of mucho, which is like a big litre bottle of beer, which you could get for about 50p over there. Drinking alcohol over there is very cheap. Um, and he would sit during the day just smoking his cigarettes with his beer, just calling out what happened. And I just quizzed him within an inch of his life. And all his response was, Lou, let it go. Just let it go. But I was so uptight, I didn't even understand what he meant by letting go. But actually, I think it was the well experience that went, bang, I've got no choice. I've got to let it go. Um, and... So it was it was pulling people around me that I could take advice from. But the advice was always, let it go. Let it go. Can you control it? No, you can't. Let it go. Is it in your control? No, it isn't. Let it go. And that was like the repeated um, mantra almost that was going on while I was over there. Um, and it was just beautifully freeing to be able to do that. And I got into shock when I got back into the UK to realise that I was starting to bring all these old patterns back in. And I, I went into a chronic depression when I was back over here. But I'm going to go back to the museum as well. Um, I, I'm going to qualify what I said a little bit earlier when I said I wasn't looking at the fact that I couldn't speak the language. I wasn't looking at the fact I didn't understand the culture. I didn't understand the history didn't understand anything about rice farming and certainly didn't have the qualifications in the tourist industry or the educational qualifications to get this done. So how did I manage to get it done? Firstly, I didn't focus on the things that I couldn't do. I focused very much on what my why was. And my why was to bring money from this huge sort of um, tourist island. It wasn't a huge tourist income from the island next door to where I was, off that island over to the to Malai so that the tourists firstly were spending their money in Malai because the, um, the people over there are living on the land. They are dirt poor, seriously poor. You know, the likes of you and me would never, ever experience that level of poverty. And that makes me sound very patronizing because these guys were not sorry for themselves at all. They were fine. But from my perspective, again, as a Western woman, a district nurse, if I remember rightly, earned, I think, about 8,000 pesos, which is about 600 pounds a month. Mm. That's covering, you know, a big, big district. So that's sort of the different levels in, in uh, payments. And I wanted people to come and spend money in this community. I also wanted people to see the Philippines as it is, because even though the museum was built uh, around about the 1930s or representing the 1930s. There was no written history on Malai about the 
culture in the area before that. So I went from the experience of the elders because our eldest, uh, Lola O'Dall, is nine, 87 now. So she was sort of in the late 70s and um, there was other elders where I picked their braids and we worked out how they used to live as children. But actually their culture hasn't moved on that much. The only difference would be that they've now got electricity and there might be two or three homes in the village that had TVs. That's the only difference. They certainly didn't have landlines. They certainly, you know, very few of them had mobile phones and a lot of them still didn't have electricity. Most of them cooked over open fires so the actual experience in the museum wasn't that far removed from real life now. And I wanted tourists to see the Filipinos as the Filipinos, not as this tourist party island where they have music and cocktails and water sports and so on, just to experience the true nature of the Filipinos and also the warmth and the love and the open heartedness of these people. So that's where my focus was. That's why the place got built. I didn't look at what I couldn't do. I looked at what I wanted to do, what I wanted to do and why. So that's, you know, get into your why as to that's how you're going to get whatever it is manifest, get into your why. What is it that you want? Why do you want it? Bring it to you. Don't look at why you can't have it. So um, that was the main, you can probably feel I've got a huge part of my heart still out. No, no, it's not moving. I'm about to start crying, actually. <laughs> you would try. Um, I had um, set up the museum in certain ways so that the tourists would see at each station as such as they walked around the museum. And my idea, this is my Western idea, that the old, uh, the elders would sit in the area where the gift shop was and they'd be doing crafts. Obviously, we didn't want them doing physical heavy work and they'd be weaving baskets and they'd be creating roofing material and, and uh, they would be creating matting and so on. So my idea was if you're sitting down working, the chances are you'll hum underneath your breath a little song as you're doing your work. Uh, and it wasn't going to work that way at all. And it's beautiful because they totally outshone my idea. And they would hum while the visitors were watching what they were doing. But as the tour came to an end, and I probably am going to cry now, um, the elders took it upon themselves and it took me by surprise the first time they did it. They stood up and they sang Adios, which is a Filipino traditional farewell song uh, woven around the Mother Mary. And it is beautiful. And the passion that they used to sing, sing this song with, you can hear me, hear me going. Most of particularly the female visitors would cry before they left the museum because it was so Oh dear, so beautiful. So yeah, I've got a huge, huge part of my my heart in this place. It's gorgeous. So if your um, listeners have a chance to get to the Philippines, get yourselves over to Motag Living Museum, which is on the island of Boracay. You have to go through Malay to get to Boracay. So go and visit the museum. It's a treat. It's still getting five-star reviews on TripAdvisor. You know, the study links I'm going to put it in the notes so everybody can see. And we'll maybe one day we're going to have a group trip. And so I absolutely would love to go, actually. But, yeah. So it feels like going back to the dreary, old, rainy England there. <laughs> back to the UK. I'm so interested, in fact, that you came back and you were really, instead of 56, when yeah. you came back from the Philippines. Yeah. And I wish my mother had a little more interest in the things I do because she's the kind of person who thinks I'm too old for anything. And I think it's really inspiring that you have a lot of people that are this way. A lot of people feel this way. Um, and my personal belief is that we put on this planet a spirit having a human experience that there is no stopping point. We have to continually grow. We have to continually evolve. We have to continually learn. We have to continually shed layers. And if we get to a point where we stuck and we've decided that there's nothing else to learn, huh? then where's the joy? You know, where is the joy? Um, uh, I'm, and again, I don't know because I'm, I'm a perpetual student. I'm always learning. So, but people who are fearful around, I can't do anything new because I am this age, please let it go. Because I set up my business when I was 
58. Um, I changed and totally had to relearn new skills when lockdown came along. So I was 60 and because I was seeing people in person, I had to go over onto Zoom. So when I was 60, totally and utterly turned my world upside down. But I got on it. Um, at 62, I did some extra training. Um, I trained last year with Daniel Raphael. Uh, he's of Dreamporting. He's got a retreat coming up this weekend, an online retreat, if anybody's around to, to get on there. It's worth doing it. Changed my life and my um, prospects. And I've just um, finished training with Jamie Cato, who used to be with the band um, Faithless. And he was the producer of Ram Dass's, um film, Becoming Nobody, the most recent one. And also you viewers might have heard of One Giant Leap. Uh, Jamie, uh, when I got back to the UK, I was very depressed. And I couldn't quite get to grips with what it was. I could, It wasn't visible to me that I was trying to put on my old conditioning, my old clothes, trying to fit back into the box that I managed to break out of. And um, Jamie Cato had a, uh, a, a two-day workshop not too far from me. And I thought, ah, I'll just go. And bless his cotton socks, if people cannot afford to pay for his workshops, if you reach out to him, he will give you a bursary. And that's what I did because I wasn't earning any money when I got back and I was broke. Um, so I reached out to him and he said, yep, please come along. And what he did was he was playing games and these games were designed to get these shadows, these parts of us that we pretend don't exist. Oh, I'm not worthy. I can't show the people, you know, people that I'm not worthy or I'm not good enough. I can't show people I'm not good enough. And, you know, we've got a whole list of these things. I've got to be perfect. I've got to be perfect. So many of these things that we try and push away, push out. And the thing is, when they're in the shadows, we can't do anything about them because they're in the shadows. The thing is, when they're in the shadows, they're ruling our lives from the background. So you've got a backseat seat driver constantly there. When we get triggered, one of these little beasties will come and knock us out and start to drive our bus. So his workshop was designed around, um, I think it was called Transforming Shadows was the first workshop I did with him. And it was all play, which for me, I've just come from the Philippines. That was all play. Woo! It was fabulous, challenging, but we were creating games out of our idiosyncrasies, out of our madness and just bringing it and showing it to everybody else. And when you can actually bring, we've all got idiosyncrasies. So anybody who says that they haven't, think again. But if we can own our idiosyncrasies and we're not fearful of showing our idiosyncrasies, of actually playing with them, having fun with them, which is what Jamie was teaching us to do, I came home just like, wow, that's what I want to do. So I started to sit down and unpack why it was I felt so free so joyful, so childlike when I was in the Philippines and I was crunched down with depression over here. So I reverse engineered it. And the story that I gave you earlier about getting rid of my belonging, my need to belong disappeared, getting rid of my need to control disappeared, things that I had no control about, just letting things go. So all of the things that I learned in the Philippines started to filter down. And I thought, well, if I can do this now, for me, because at this point, I'd got to a point where I was blissful. I was just, uh, even though I hadn't got a job, I was still blissful. It was wonderful. I had that freedom again, slightly different because I hadn't got the community, but I got the freedom within me again. Um, so I thought I could teach other people to do this. So I went off and qualified as a mindfulness therapist. Uh, I did my NLP master practitioner um, qualification. And as I said, more recently, I've trained with um, Daniel Raphael. So I'm a now uh, dream party master and also just finished training with Jamie. So I'm now one of Jamie's teachers. So I bring a lot of play and a lot of light into the work that I do. Um, and I work with energy as well as me talking to you to try and within three or four questions, I can work out what your deepest block is, where your root is, what's holding you back. And then what I'll do is very gently take you into a meditation so that we gently between us can hold you, hold your space and allow this little injury that has probably come up through childhood just to blissfully release and return back to the universe. So, but that's taken me quite a long time since coming back to the Philippines to this point now. But my work now is so quick and so effective, but I'm using energy 
because I'm now invited back in energetic work, whereas before I was terrified of it. Now I'm not because I've got a whole community of people within the Dreamporting team that support me if I need advice or need support or what have you. There are other people with the same experiences. And I've got a whole team of people that I've met through training with Jamie, who again are just really supportive. And it's wonderful to be in a community where everybody is like-minded. Everybody wants the same thing. And we all want the world to grow. You know, the earth's calling out for us to all raise our vibration. And the more we do it, the more people who do it, the easier the earth is going to find it. Um, and for me, I want it to be as light as gentle and as playful. And I've got to this point, and this is as light and as gentle and as playful as I possibly, possibly get it. And I love it. The transformation I see with clients that I've worked with for maybe six months is now really quick. It's like, okay, what happened? Over the last six months, you've been working really hard and we've been working together and it's been beautiful. Now I'm using all of this energetic work as well. It's really quick. It's gorgeous. So I've rattled. I absolutely love your energy to be fair. You're always welcome to, to carry on. It actually sounds like you gave up the need for belonging, but you found belonging in return. I think that's beautiful. I don't know whether... I haven't thought about it that I found belonging in return. Um, so I know when you're talking about your horses and everything. I don't have a need to belong, but what I am in is a body of people who just work from the heart. And that's where I work from. And it's beautiful. I don't need to belong to them. They don't need to belong to me. There's no possession anywhere. There's no labeling. There's no analysis of other people. There's no judgment, I think, is probably the strongest thing that's no judgment. I can be totally myself and be totally accepted or not, but I'm also all right if I'm not accepted as well because I'm not everybody's cup of tea, as you can hear. I'm highly energetic. I'm sort of really quite vibrant and very strong. Um, I should offer from everybody else in this country. <laughs> not everybody else. No, there's loads of us. Like there's a lot of yeah. Come on. Yeah, that's true. But yeah, it's quite... Not that common, at least in the people closest to me, there's still a bit of this different kind of mentality. And... Yes, it's difficult. It's difficult to find um, people. You have to seek them out. And I'm in the same position as you because I live in Cornwall. It's a stunningly beautiful place where I live. But the actual spiritual community is doesn't rub the same way as I rub, if that makes sense. It's a very sort of, uh, and again, I'll sound very denigrating towards hippies, not being denigrating towards hippies, but it's not the energy that I'm um, sitting comfortably with. So I have an online community. I've got a couple of people who are in the UK, but I have to travel to see them. I seek out retreats with, who are being run by people I know um, because they're going to be like-minded people that come to those retreats. I run retreats of my own, so I end up in a 3D situation, which I love. I love being in 3D, where people are coming to work with me because they've all got the same sort of mindset. So they are out there. Um, and the thing is, all we need to do is just touch somebody who is sleeping but is ready to wake up. You don't have to do anything for them, but they just open up just from a smile from you or from just being in your energy or your presence, you don't know what's going to be channeled through them, what might wake up. So this idea that us people who work in the in the energetic field that we've got to wake everybody up, no. It's, you know, it's a trip-down effect. So we look after ourselves as number one. Each and every one of us fill our own cups up, become fully self-loving in ourselves, then everything else that spills out is a gift that's beautiful. You, you've dropped so many pearls of wisdom today. Like, I would keep you here the entire afternoon to be here. I've got a to go to other. <laughs> well, I went to In fact, I didn't look Daniel at four o'clock, so I, I would stay. <laughs> well, that, yeah, still a bit. Now, so I was going to start wrapping up. Do you have any final wisdom? And then we can talk about anything you have coming up, especially the retreats, because that sounds really cool, especially if you're running there in Cornwall. It's any excuse to be there. Any final thoughts of wisdom? Or any final thoughts in general? 
Um, okay. So, we all have blocks of sorts, okay? And what we tend to do is we admonish ourselves. We tell ourselves off. We get nasty towards ourselves because of whatever the block is. And these blocks that we have have been put in place sometimes on purpose, but most times through total and utter ignorance and, and you know, unintentionally by our parents, by our schools, by the people on the playground, by work situations. And we clip and edit ourselves because we end up getting hurt as we grow up. So what we do, if I give you an example of how this could happen, um, if you can imagine you've got little Johnny Everybody who knows me has heard this story, so forgive me if you've, you've heard it already. But you've got little Johnny, who, two years of age, and he's learned how to turn the volume up on the radio. And a piece of music comes on that he absolutely loves. And he's there, and he's dancing, and he's in his element, and he's absolutely blissed out. And at one with everything, because we come into this world enlightened. So he's there, fully connected. Mom comes in and goes... Will you sit down and shut up? Now, Johnny is knocked out of his red reverie and the pain is so intense that that part of him will break off because Johnny hasn't got the rationale as a two-year-old to go, ah, mommy's auntie Ward died two days ago and she needs me to be quiet or she's got a deadline, she can't concentrate. He can't rationalise that as a, as a two-year-old. He will break that part of himself off going, that bit of me is wrong. But the bit of him that he feels is wrong still floats around in stasis. It's always there. And we've got loads. The bad news is we've got loads of them. There isn't just one. There's loads of them. But that's our job is to bring them into the, into the light and, and uh, alchemize them. So this little part of him is there constantly behind a little locked door, terrified to come out, looking for the same stimulus that caused that immense pain in the first place. So Johnny goes off to the school dance and he's 14 or 15 and a piece of music comes on that he loves, his instinct is, oh, I've got to get up and dance. And this part of him, this little broken off part of him, is going to do everything in his power to pull him back. No, you can't do it. Your legs are too long. The boys are going to beat you up. Your blazer's the wrong colour. The girls are going to hate you. And it will keep going until eventually Johnny goes, oh, no, I've got to sit down. I can't dance. So this is where the inner critic comes from. It's our egoic state desperately trying to keep us safe and it's made up of the myriad this is my uh viewpoint on it and there's lots of different versions of the same thing but this is coming from how i understand it there's lots of these tiny parts of us that have broken off that are desperately trying to keep us safe so the way i work is to get these little parts of us up into the light so that they feel safe and then they can relax and they stop controlling you because they're confident in you being the parent, I suppose, the parent they've never had. So um, when you notice yourself beating yourself up, getting nasty about yourself, stop, 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 stop. Because all you're doing is beating up one of these little children inside you that is desperately trying to keep you safe in the most naive two-year-old kind of way that it possibly can. So self-admonishment and self-criticism and self-flagellation um, and self-punishment basically doesn't get you anywhere. It just drives you into a deeper hole. So the, we need to do the opposite. We need to fill you up with self-love, self-acceptance, and self-acceptance is the key. And that's all of your idiosyncrasies as well as all of your perfections. So being perfectly imperfect and owning it. And letting go of why they can grow. One lesson. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. So uh, is there anything that's coming up that you want to mention? And then, of course, shoot me over any links and explanations and stuff that I can put in. This. Uh, okay. So, Alexis, I just want to flag up that I've got a retreat coming up on the 18th of September. And it's in an eco-retreat or an eco-glamping site under geodomes with amazing views out over the sea, over Plymouth Sound. Um, and 
you won't hear any traffic. Um, it is just you and nature. And the retreat is going to teach you how to tame your inner critic. And we're going to be playing some of the Jamie Cato type games. Uh, we'll be doing some very deep transformational meditations. I'm going to be joined by a lady called Annie Redfern, who is a five elements acupuncturist and also the author of a book called Rivers of Light and another book called Heartlight. Um, and between us, we're going to be allowing you to release and let go of these blocks that really hold you down. Um, and also, if anybody does want to book a call with me, I'm offering a free call for anybody who wants to, where I will, just through a few questions, be able to find out what your deepest block is. So if any of your listeners are interested in booking with me, if they go to the website, the book now button is right on the front page. It's very easy underneath or above my video to see me ranting on again on my website. I hope that everybody will take you up on that offer because that sounds like a really great thing to do. And the retreat especially, that sounds really I'm good. I'm excited about the retreat. The, the, <laughs> stuff, the spaces are selling fast. So I think, uh, yeah, if you're interested in booking, please get in touch now. Make sure there is still availability by the time you get in touch. Yeah. Hopefully. So thank you very much for your time and your wisdom. I absolutely loved it. And I'd say, I dare say I was the first one who needed to hear it. And I'm sure somewhere else out there too. And that'll let you get on since you mentioned that you have a meeting in like 45 minutes. So you can prepare an Bless you, Alexis. Thank you so much. You too. Okay. Before the forecast, I wanted to flag that she has a 12-week program coming up too, which is called Mind Management and Manifestation. If you are interested, the links to everything we mentioned are in the show notes and you can get your free consultation to see if it's the right fit for you. I find it amusing that this season is focused on manifestation and that's the thing that slips through the cracks. But I couldn't hype a retreat in Cornwall enough, so I will take responsibility for it. And currently this week is the sixth of cups reversed. I'm going to reef off Calidon, who was my guest at the beginning of this season, if you're new and haven't checked it out yet. And she pulled it for the collective the other day too, although upright. And she talked about making sure our inner child feels safe. The thing with six planets in retrograde and Pluto squaring the nodes, it's a great time for inner child work that goes a little deeper because one way we can look at a reversal is inward focus. Another thing to keep in mind with the Six of Cups is the tendency to romanticize the past, which can also be a form of dismissing the negative stuff that we went through because it was not a big T trauma. And the sky this week is reflecting the inwards direction since not a lot of forward movement is going on. Among the personal planets, we have Mercury conjunct Venus. It's up at 5.15pm CET today and the day of release. So this is your reminder to show your appreciation for the people in your life in the next day or so. And as someone who knows the loneliness of being married to someone who makes you feel used and taken for granted, cannot stress enough how important that is. Now I have to pause and go cry. My cycle seems perfectly synced with the moon in Scorpio. Anyway, Mercury will then shift into Virgo tomorrow at 11.32pm CET. That's one of his own signs, so yay! Whatever house is occupying for you, but also the scenes of the third and sixth house would be a good area to look at reorganising. Mercury is our biggest player this week, with one more transit on the second, with his, his opposition to Saturn. Just to be one of the transit that gets the most fear-mongering astrologer rise up. But I think it is as negative, especially when you look at the axis it's in. It's true you might get bad news, but hey, that can happen with so many transits. It's just a fact of life. What I feel it is, is an invitation to look at our own internal narratives 
And being scared of hard aspects qualifies as one too. Just my humble opinion. But before that, we have one aspect between Mars and Jupiter that is universally thought to be a positive one. A trine going intact at 10.44pm CET on the 1st. That's a good time to schedule some deep work on something that needs a balance of physical and mental energy. Especially those of you whose time zone means it's happening in the daytime. But even as in Europe can do it in the morning of the 2nd. The transit is considered in place for 3 degrees anyway, by at least most astrologers, and neither planet moves that fast. Hanging there with the Scorpio moon, she'll be in Sag tomorrow. And until next time, keep living in wonder. Thank you for listening to the Starry Sky and Witchy Things podcast. A huge thank you to Jenna Sword at Jenna S-O-A-R-D on Instagram for the cover art and Papa Planet for the music. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to be notified when a new one comes out, please subscribe on your platform of choice. And if you really love it, leave a five-star rating and review, which will help me be found by more people who'll enjoy it too. Also, feel free to share it on social media and with anyone you think should give it a shot. You can send your questions and comments to my email starryskypodcast at gmail.com or on Instagram at starryskypodcast. And you can also subscribe to my monthly newsletter at witchymusings.substack.com where I share reflections and tips about the astrological seasons. Until next time, 